You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 305. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. Now, I don't know if uh, if you've used the medical system recently, whether you're in this country, in the United States or another country. I know I have. And I don't think there are many people who go there who don't think, you know, things could be running a little bit more smoothly around here, a little bit more logically. Well, today we're going to have a conversation uh, in a little bit that's at the intersection of technology and the medical system. But it also includes a lot of practical advice for you as a patient, which if you're not right now, congratulations, you're not a patient, but you will be. Everybody will be someday, so don't worry. Uh, this will be relevant to you. Uh, all right, I hope you enjoyed last week's episode, uh, which was more focused on current events. Last week's episode was on the drama that unfolded recently at uh, OpenAI. Looks like the future of this technology, uh, particularly you know, Open OpenAI's GPT models and, and everything they're working on and who owns it is an incredible flux due to their you know, complex board structure. So uh, this story has obviously involved, uh, uh, it's evolved significantly over the last week with uh, for CEO Sam Altman um, before last week's episode, you know, being uh, kicked out by the board. Then he was going to Microsoft at first, and now finally he's back in at OpenAI. So maybe we'll get a chance to discuss that whole story and the follow-up with Aaron uh, in the next week or so. All right, so let's get into the uh, uh, the main event today. My next guest is an oncologist, an internal medicine physician, and a professor at Stanford Medicine. She is also an award-winning medical journalist and the author of Fragmented, A Doctor's Quest to Piece Together American Healthcare. Ilana Yerkowitz, you've reached the local maximum. Welcome to the show. Thanks. It's good to be here. All right. We're here to talk about your book, mostly your book, we can talk about other things too. The book is called Fragmented, A Doctor's Quest to Piece Together American Healthcare. Uh, as the title suggests, you talk about the fragmented data systems that our medical professionals face. And um, I do want to talk about now, I, I, I do want to talk about that, both, both how we can rethink the system and the technology. But um, I think the other draw of the book where I want to start is the really gut-wrenching, emotionally charged, and high-pressure decisions that doctors, uh, patients, and their families sometimes have to make. And, and you have a lot of stories about that in this book, which I think makes it um, you know, more interesting than just kind of like a rote, uh, like here's some, here's some technology, uh, uh, here's, here's a list of pieces of technology <laughs> book, which, which uh, would, maybe wouldn't be as interesting. So uh, tell me, like, how do doctors tend to manage in these situations? Do you think it takes a certain sort of person to become a doctor who deals with these types of emergencies and unknowns? I think it's a personality trait that can be learned, but I do think if you practice medicine long enough, you get very accustomed to being calm in the chaos and trying to make sense of situations that are inherently complicated where you might have to make uh, hundreds of high stakes, sometimes life or death decisions in the course of a day. And so, you know, you might not come into medicine uh, fully <laughs> ready and have, you know, and trained to be able to do that. But I do think you develop a personality just by doing it long enough where, um, you know, I've, I've led emergency responses on patients many, many times, and I've gotten accustomed to saying things like, 
I need two units of packed red cells and four units of platelets as though I'm ordering a burger and fries. And you have to stay calm in those situations. And I wrote the book in that way intentionally because I that is what practicing medicine is like. And I wanted people to see the reality of it, not just from patient's point of view, but also from doctor's point of view and how we have to um, make sense of information very, very quickly and be decisive. Do you think that uh, staying cool under pressure, do you have any like tricks uh, uh, to... Uh... To, to learn that personality trait or is it just uh, something where uh, you, you just have to be in those situations for a long time? Because I think everyone in life wants that. And I, I feel like sometimes I feel like, okay, I can calm down, but now I'm not getting anything done. So <laughs> they say in medicine, when you show up to a code, which is a cardiac arrest yeah. and a patient loses their pulse, the first thing you should do is check your own pulse. Mm. And I've abided by that logic in other high stakes medical situations as well even though we have to make a lot of decisions quickly, I would say you do often have more than a few seconds and often more than a few minutes to make a good decision. So the first step is, is just, you know, taking that deep breath and calming down and, and recognizing that you have a little bit of time to think. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and those are, um, those are often like, you know, high, uh, I, I'm, I'm picturing in my mind, like high stakes emergency room situations. There's also situations where, um, I've been in or, and family members of mine have been in, which are maybe less, you know, oh, what do we do over the next few months? Or what do we do over the next few days? That's maybe a little bit less, um, it's less like playing live sports or something like that. Yeah. Those are more like a game of chess. I feel like, you know, you're trying to make good decisions in the long run and taking into account multiple factors and not just taking into account those multiple factors, but learning how to communicate that well to people who are don't have a background in medicine. And that I think is actually one of the great joys of medicine for me. And I think for a lot of my colleagues. Uh, yeah. Uh, so you mentioned there are things that, that patients can do to get better care at the doctor's office. And I know I've learned a, a few of those. So, so let's talk about uh, some of those. Um, and, and, you know, in particular, uh, you know, sometimes you're a patient, either you're a family member or you're a patient. If you're a patient, you're just sick. I, I, I've never been able to, it's like, okay, ask the doctor lots of questions and try to figure it out. I've never been able to do that uh, while sick. And then when it's a family member, you kind of feel like, oh my God, I'm not, I'm not asking enough or, 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 or something. What, what do you think that, that patients can do now that we're all listening to this and we're all pre presumably calm and, and well, or at least the vast majority of people listening to this, what's something you could think about now that uh, would help you get better care when, when you're at the doctor and, and you don't have time to learn all this? The first thing to know, and I would say the most important thing to know is not to assume that your doctors know your full medical story. Even if you've come into the same doctor multiple times, even if you've come into the same healthcare facility multiple times, the entirety of the book is about how on the on the other end, on the doctor's end, the healthcare system is so fragmented that doctors are constantly working in a state of being partially blindfolded to the full details of your story. And that happens in a multitude of ways. It happens when your data, when, you, when your health data gets lost between different facilities or even gets lost within the same muddled electronic chart. And it happens when you see different providers and communication gaps uh, persist between the different providers. So from a patient or a family member's point of view, first things first, don't assume that they have the full details of your medical story. 
get used to repeating yourself. And I recognize this isn't fair. And I'm saying this, you know, on air that this is, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. If you are sick, the last thing you want to be doing is being the shepherd of your own medical story because you're not in a state of mind to do that well. So if you do have a family member or an advocate who can be with you, that is something uh, important that I would encourage everyone who's listening this listening to this um, to discuss in advance. So it's not just you, but you have someone else in your life who knows your medical history and who can advocate for you in a situation where perhaps you can't advocate for yourself. But um, if you are in a state of mind where you can communicate well, um, I would suggest a couple of things. One is to have an elevator pitch of your medical history. So a shorthand version that when doctors are kind of clicking and clicking through your electronic chart, trying to piece together a coherent narrative themselves, it's really helpful if you can give them the highlights. Like I am a 35-year-old male with a past medical history of type 2 diabetes where I take insulin and uh, you know this is what I'm here for. Uh, this is my chief complaint. And so having that shorthand version can be really helpful to doctors when they're trying to piece it together themselves. That's, that's a really interesting idea because I feel like, you know, I feel like you might have a tendency to go into your life story and it's not clear to a patient what is, what's relevant and, uh, and yes. what's not relevant. Yes. And that, that is very true. And this happens to me all the time where I have patients come to me and, and just bring up everything because they're not sure if the a rectal bleed they had 20 years ago, you know, is relevant to the chest pain they've had today. Definitely, you know, when you have the luxury of time, it's always better to bring something up than not to bring it up. And so the situation is different, let's say, when you have a scheduled 30-minute doctor's appointment in the primary care setting, or if you were in the emergency room, critic, you know, very, very sick with something. And if you can adapt different versions of your medical history for those different situations, that would ultimately get you the best care. Do you think, so if you were to like advise like your family members who are, who are looking for doctors and I realize we're going to get to the technical stuff, but this is, I think this is like important for people to, yeah, to, yeah. to think about, I, I like if you're advising family members who are, who are maybe seeing a doctor for the first time or are thinking of switching doctors, like what, um, what are some like, uh, good and bad signs, um, to, to, to look for uh, as to like, whether you're getting along with your doctor, whether you're, you, you're getting better care. Sometimes, you know, sometimes a, a, a patient might feel like, uh, okay, I, 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 ha I don't have anyone else to go to. I've already invested too much into this person. I think you want to look for a doctor who listens. And I think that's one of the most important qualities in a doctor. It's another adage in medicine that often you will get the diagnosis from the patient's history, <laughs> like from what the patient is telling you, sometimes even more than the objective data that trickles in later. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot of data about how doctors interrupt patients after a really short amount of time. It's something like 12 or 18 seconds in the outpatient setting. And I do want to say there's a lot of factors that go into that that are beyond doctor's control. You know, we are pushed by payment models that um, incentivize for shorter and shorter visits. But that being said, um, you do want a doctor who's going to listen to your story and you want someone um, who will ask you follow-up questions based on things that you say. Uh, I don't think you want someone who will just come in and act like they know everything before hearing your story. And I think there's good data to support this too. That's that's good to know. That's good to know now because you know once you go in there, sometimes you feel like, well, they're you know they're 
dismissing me because they already know the answer. So I might as well listen to the expert, but it's good to know that, hey, I should be looking for someone who's uh, who's listening to me. So I think that uh, was an old way of doing medicine, to be honest. Mm. You know, the very top down doctor knows best. And in the last decade plus, we've shifted more to a model of what we in medicine called shared decision making. So you're making decisions together between a doctor and a patient. And that is the best way to practice medicine because who is more invested in your own health than, than you? Maybe the doctors, the doctors know more about the medicine that you, than you do, but you know more about yourself. So in order to, to come up with a treatment plan, you know, that fits into your life and matches your values, your doctor needs to know those values. And that comes from you, you sharing them. All right. So great. So now let's get into the, the technical bits. Um, everyone's patient data is everywhere. I know I have my charts on like five different places. Uh, and uh, the more problems you have, the more doctors you see and the more spread out it gets. Uh, do, do you see a, a solution to this problem? Uh, could it be uh, 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 maybe the, the solution could be technical or maybe it just could be organizational? I know a lot of people who have a lot of good technical solutions for medicine, but maybe you know can't get it implemented. I think... Just very briefly before I mention solutions, I just want to lay out what the problems are because yes. I think there are two and I think they are related, but also somewhat different problems in how our healthcare data is organized. The first problem is lack of data sharing between different facilities and between different electronic health vendors. So we are in a situation in the United States where there are hundreds of different electronic health vendors who uh, have control over your medical data and your medical records. And this came from a push in 2009 where Congress authorized and funded legislation, I won't get into too much of the weeds here, called the High Tech Tech Act, um, where they tried to stimulate the conversion of paper charts to electronic medical records. And for the most part, hospitals and doctor's offices did this successfully. However, they often did this in silos meaning that there was no related push or stimulus from the government requiring that these different systems communicate with one another. And so now over 10 years, almost 15 years later, we are in a situation where we lack what's called interoperability, where again, if you transfer as a patient, let's say from one doctor's office, even to another doctor's office, just up the street, if they use a different electronic vendor, your records will not be seamlessly shared and integrated. And sharing data is just step one. Integrating data is step number two. Um, So we rely heavily in medicine in the year 2023 on fax machines. Um, I learned to use a fax machine when I was an intern in residency, and we still do that. And 90% of healthcare facilities still use fax machines because even if you can share data across facilities that way, it's not going to be integrated in in your medical story in a meaningful way. So the solution to that is interoperability, true interoperability, which means, again, not just sharing, but integrating data across different systems. And I want to emphasize that this is more of a, it has been historically more of a bureaucratic problem than actually a technical problem. There are technical solutions to be able to do this. And there are some electronic vendors that have already implemented and made a lot of progress in this space. Um, The most commonly used electronic vendor, Epic, has a platform now called Care Everywhere, where with the click of a button, you as a healthcare provider can access your patient data from outside facilities, as long as those outside facilities have also agreed to share that data. 
And so it is being integrated, um, you know, across some institutions. It's just it wasn't set up that way. And so progress has been slow in the last 10 to 15 years. The second thing I do want to just bring up is um, how data is organized, even within one system. So again, interoperability refers to how we share and integrate healthcare data across systems. Um, but even within one electronic vendor, I write in the book a lot about technical and organizational issues that arise when your data is scattered throughout an electronic ecosystem that just isn't well organized, to be frank, that didn't that wasn't created with the user in mind. And so a very quick example of this, uh, in, in, in my practice, um, there are, I would say, maybe five, 10 places where you can pull up a patient's medication list. And some of those medication lists are updated when the patient updates it at home through their patient portal. And some of those medication lists aren't updated. So it's literally just a problem of how the current EMRs are organized, that there are so many different tabs um, that I believe were not created fully with the user in mind, the user being the doctor or the healthcare provider. So they can put all of these pieces together in a seamless way. And so the solution to that, um, or a solution to that, I would say big picture, you know, first things first, um, anyone who's creating this technology needs to have the right stakeholders at the table and they need to have the users at the table. And I think historically that was not uh, done particularly well. And that is how we have spiraled to a situation that we have now. So, I mean, I'm used to working at like a social media company where you're constantly looking at the, the usage pattern of the software and you're, you're constantly updating it. Um, and then, you know, it could feel very slow, but if you do that over the course of 10 years, it gets great. So yeah. why is that not happening here? I think it is happening and I just think it's very slow. <laughs> okay. Um, I think if you compare how EMR's electronic medical records look now versus when I started out in practice in 2015, uh, we have made progress. I think a lot of this progress has been tinkering around the edges, which is fine. You know, you can't really start from scratch. You can't overhaul an entire system. And there's a lot of initiatives now that are coming from inside the house, you know, per se, that where doctors are getting involved um, in how the technology is organized. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, even something as simple as you mentioned, like, um, uh, you know, uh, the list of, uh, list of medications that someone's taking. Um, and then it's like, okay, if you want to you, you get it, what, five different ways, five different places, are those all going to give the same answer? Or are they going to give different answers? And then if you want to integrate them, which one is the right one? I mean, it just seems like that, that's a, uh, that's a well, problem you know, that's, you don't yeah. have to write code to solve that problem. You've got to find exactly. out. You've got to find out what the right thing is. Exactly. And as someone who has written plenty of code before I went into medicine, yes, I can say that pretty clearly. Um, it would be simple enough to just have one medication tab. Uh, there's no reason that it needs to be confusing like that, where people, where doctors can literally miss what your latest meds are just because they happen to click the wrong button. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's rough. Um are there any proposals that are being floated around or, or dreamed up today that, that you're optimistic about or, or intrigued about? I think one intriguing thing is how um, electronic vendors are potentially now working a lot more with big tech companies to solve this problem. And I can also say I'm excited about this as someone who lives in Silicon Valley. You know, I can I can bike to the Google headquarters and in 30 minutes. Um, but then I, I'm still in a situation where I can't always pull up test results to block up the street. 
And so I write in the book a bit about how uh, big tech companies have tried to interfere in this sphere um, because the logic makes sense. I mean, who better to organize big data in health um, than the people who are most used to organizing big data outside of health? And they were blocked, um, I would say, more by bureaucratic and red tape obstacles than they were by technical ones. But this is changing. And in 2018, for example, six big tech companies convened and pledged their assistance um, to getting involved in the healthcare sphere to better facilitate this problem of interoperability or sharing data. And I can give one concrete example that I that I wrote a little bit about in the book and has been updated since, um, which is Google's initiative where they paired up with Ascension Health a couple of years ago, which was the second largest healthcare organization and tried to create a search tool within the cluttered EMR that would allow doctors to search, for example, even if there are typos and errors. Like if you call a myocardial infarction, a heart attack, and you search heart attack, you know, you should still be able to pull up data, um, even if you use that synonymous term, or if you make a typo. And so I am excited about a potential partnership between big tech and medicine that I think is long overdue. I think this needs to be done and I do write in the book about some of the controversies that have come up about privacy um, and, and patients fully opting in in order for this to be done well and while um, adhering to HIPAA rules. Right. What do you think um, are the uh, promises and, and maybe pitfalls of pattern recognition technology, you know, when it comes to machine learning AI more, more popularly, uh, more, more popularly expressed, like, hey, uh, we could look at uh, a patient's, we could have, you know, some system look at a patient's entire history images and maybe, uh, maybe find some patterns, maybe find some diagnoses that uh, uh, a doctor could miss. I think there's a ton of promise there because right now the pattern recognition is happening manually. And I think this has, you know, we're learning a lot more about this, but I think this has been studied in a couple places. For example, where they had doctors, cardiologists read EKGs, um, or electrocardiograms of the heart, and they had machine learning do it. <laughs> and they asked them, you know, to spit out a diagnosis of a heart attack. And it was that the computer could often do it better than the physician. And so I think there's a lot of potential here for some of the low hanging fruit in medicine. And I do think the low hanging fruit in medicine actually is the pattern recognition. I think there's still plenty of doctor for doctors to do beyond recognizing the basic patterns when it comes to decision-making and taking into account everything we talked about earlier, like the patient's values and preferences, your values and preferences and experience. But the hard part of data should not be the, the data entry or the pattern recognition. And I wish we had a system uh, you know, where the technology is doing this better for us. The pitfall, of course, is that there's going to be errors and they do have to be manually checked. Um, when you search through, it's it's kind of a garbage in, garbage out problem. Um, if there are errors in the electronic charts, which there currently are, <laughs> and we could talk for a long time about why that happens, um, and you can't change the past of an electronic chart. So there are errors that are actually just embedded in your medical history. And so if the data that goes into these pattern recognition software um, is not correct, the data that comes out of the pattern recognition software can also not be correct. So we will still need manual checks. And you know, one, one of my concerns is that this technology might actually increase the burdens that then are ultimately placed on human beings, where we already have a ton of burdens. And you know, our job, like I mentioned, should not be 
pattern recognition per se, or double checking technology that we're trusting to do some of this stuff for us. And I worry about hours and hours of labor that are going to be placed on already busy physicians, because truthfully, that is what has happened over the last 10 years. Yeah. Um, it's it, the, these errors that come up are, are really interesting. You said we could talk more about that. I mean, I know sure. I have something where I have a number in my blood work that every time it, it gets flagged, the doctor says, oh, you could safely ignore that. I've, I've seen this before. And I'm like, okay, okay. True. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, then, then there's just like, you know, I mean, it's kind of weird because we have access to our doctor's notes, right? And, you know, so, so you go in and you look at that and I'm like, ah, oh, they totally wrote that down wrong. And it's, it's, it's kind of concerning. Yeah. And I, I make plenty of errors, right? I mean, so I think to explain why that happens, I do have to take just a quick step back and talk about, uh, <laughs> about why we're forced to work in 10 minute visits. Mm. You know, doctors have so much to do and they have to do it yeah. all in 10 minutes. And very briefly, I will say that is a payment model that just fundamentally does need to change. And it's a payment model that reimburses doctors and healthcare organizations for a service. We fundamentally in this country have a fee-for-service system. And in outpatient settings like primary care, a service is an office visit, meaning nothing else is directly compensated work. And so uh, healthcare organizations are financially incentivized to book more and more patients in shorter and shorter slots. Um, because that is the way to maximize services and to maximize re revenue. But you can imagine if you were a doctor seeing somebody in 10 minutes or 15 minutes and doing all the work, let's say, first of reading through their electronic chart, if you know them or even if you don't know them, um, sitting down, having a conversation with a patient, doing a physical exam, coming up with an assessment and pl plan, placing test results in the computer system, and then writing all of that up after the fact in a note your note might have errors. So I think doctors today really have two choices. I mean, you do the note when you're in front of the patient and then people complain about doctors not making eye contact and the, the software coming in between patients and doctors, or you do it on your free time. Um, what free time you might ask. So that's a situation where you're working at night and into the weekend doing charting. Um, but either way, it's easy to make a simple error like the patient reported four days of coughing and not five um, or even um, there's a lot of copy paste we use within the charts to make things easier for us, to make this process easier for us. But if you're copying and pasting, I might say that you are a 30-year-old male when now you're a 35-year-old male, and I've just been copying that over the last couple of years. Yeah, that's common in software engineering as well. Just copy old code because that's what we never want to write a whole new thing. Um, so what's the, what's the alternative to, to fee for service? Like, um, you know, do you think there could be like an alternate, I mean, be hard to kind of, you know, turn around the entire system, but like, if you, if you're able to, if you're able to kind of think of a, a future where, where that was working better, what, what, what would the structure look like? The alternative, and I, I don't take credit for this. This is not something that I've come up with. This is something that's happening is value-based care. So healthcare organizations or doctors are paid more based on outcomes and how patients do than based on the services they provide. And you can imagine that will incentivize worker uh, healthcare workers in, in positive directions in a lot of ways. If you are incentivized to do whatever the patient needs to get healthier, you will invest in what that is, whether it's more time, more support staff, better tech, uh, more frequent follow-up, and so I think we are moving very, also very, very, very slowly um, towards the direction of value-based care. 
there are problems in value-based care too. Um, you don't want to be penalized if a patient has a, a terrible diagnosis and we can't always cure everybody in medicine, right? And so there need to be ways to take into account the complexity um, and the underlying factors of a patient's health that might make their outcomes poorer. Um, but I think overall, moving in that direction um, is a better way. I think uh, there's no perfect system, but fee-for-service is, is definitely uh, carries a lot of problems. So I I want to ask you I don't have this right written down here but but it is sort of um sort of re reminded me of, of this question I know a lot of doctors have kind of mixed feelings about patients who come in and, and do their own research but the reality is a lot of people are probably more comfortable talking to Google and now ChatGPT about all their problems and being able to sit there for like you know thirty minutes and an hour and, and having that kind of like in depth possibility so how do you how do you um, foresee that being integrated into the uh, system of, into the whole process. Uh, I, I think it's great. So I can't speak for all doctors, but I write about, a bit about this in the book and how we've sort of changed our thinking over time here too, where previously was this more top-down model where doctor knows best and patients were not even supposed to ask questions. They were supposed to just do whatever the doctor told them to do. I think it's very different now. And I, you know, I personally am thrilled when a patient comes in having done their own research. Um, as long as we can have a conversation about it and then, you know, it's based on trust and they can trust me to put it in context if what I recommend ultimately ends up being different than what Dr. Google recommends, which happens very frequently. Um, I think if you have a, a doctor that you have a good relationship with, um, it only enhances the conversation when patients can come more prepared to their doctor's visits. Uh, I think in many ways, this is kind of like the flipped classroom model in education, um, where you do want students to do some of the legwork beforehand and watch the lectures, and then you can spend the time in the classroom going through higher level stuff and problem solving. I would like to get to a place where it's mostly like that in medicine too. Um, if not everybody can do this, and I do want to say that. Um, but if patients do research on their own health and then they come in prepared, we can then have spend time on a conversation that's higher level um, and has to do with decision making. Interesting, interesting. All right, that, that's good to know. Uh, my next question is actually a, a, a little lighter, but you know, I I was in the um, uh, I was in the Yale University bookstore the other day, and I know you went to Yale undergrad as did I, and. Yes. I, there's a Yale University author section, and I always thought that's like, oh, that's just like professors who work here who are like putting their books up there. I didn't realize that if you were a Yale undergrad, you write a book, you could get your book in that section. So I don't know if you knew that, but I, I did realize that, but I yeah. haven't followed up if my book is actually in that section. Yeah, so. well, you should contact them because I have I, to call them. Once I once I found that out, I was like, oh crap, I got to write a book now. I that's <laughs> the real reason there. I wrote this book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it. Well. Uh, but before we wrap up, like, obviously you wanted to get these ideas out here, out there. And obviously you've been thinking about this problem for a long time. And you think this is a, uh, obviously this is a huge problem and, and, and you want to um, be able to c contribute to the solution. But when did you decide to to write a book? What, what were the challenges? Were there any challenges there that you weren't expecting? It's It's hard to write a book, but I knew I needed to write this book. And I came into it with a background in science and medical journalism, along with my career as a physician. 
So I've written articles before, and actually the book was a deep expansion of an article that I wrote in 2018 and published in 2018 about unshared medical records. And I would say it was probably over the next year or two that I was thinking more about that and how medical records, in my view, were just the tip of the iceberg. And there was so much more I needed to say. And I kept going back to this one word, fragmented. And medical records are fragmented, but there are many other factors in healthcare that are also fragmented. And so it was 2020 when I, uh, it was when COVID hit actually that I took some time and I wrote up a book proposal laying out all these different ways that medicine is fragmented. Yeah, uh, that's great. Were you, um, did you learn anything about the writing process that you weren't expecting? And I know we're, we're getting into the more of the oh. uh, behind the scenes, but. Yeah, of course. Um, writing a book is by far the longest thing I've ever written. And so what I would suggest to anyone who wants to do it is to be hyper-organized up front. And when you write a book proposal, they, you typically do include a list of chapters and what every chapter is going to say. I took that part very seriously. And then I followed my proposal um, very closely when I was writing the book so that I didn't get lost. Mm. And, um, you know, I wrote a first draft and then I went back and I, it was ultimately about three drafts before it was the final product. Um, it was really important to me not to be repetitive um, and not to go off on tangents. And so the first draft just got it all down. And then the second and third time I went back to it, I just started from the very beginning and I was also ruthless with my words, you know, anything that didn't contribute to the overall point, I cut, I saved it in a document in case I ever wanted to use it later. Uh, but I was, I was pretty ruthless in cutting. Yeah, that's often helpful. It, also for like throwing things away too, uh, you know, and just cleaning up like it's- I haven't yet applied that logic to my house. Yeah, well, sometimes like if you take a picture or if you know you store it somewhere, then like it's easier to get it out of sight. Uh, rather than just saying, okay, this is going to be, you know, burns and never again, because then you're like, oh, I don't know. Uh, but, right. um, but yeah, did, did you, just another question for, uh, uh, did, did you um, have to like search for the stories that were, it, it, you have a lot of stories in here about, you know, patients who who come in and are, have a crisis. Did, did you have to kind of search for those or did those kind of just, did you sort of know beforehand what stories you wanted? Did you, were there stories that you wanted to tell that you didn't get to tell? I didn't really feel like I had to search for stories. I've been a doctor since 2015 and I've taken care of thousands of patients. So these stories that I included were the ones that I've been thinking about. And I think I've just been thinking about them for a reason um, because there was something in their care that was fragmented that contributes to this overall conclusion that I had that healthcare is fragmented. And so I think I'm very privileged you know, to have this front row seat in medicine but I also want to say, you know, I was very careful with how I wrote everything. Um, if I didn't get explicit permission from a patient, everything was de-identified where I changed details of their personal history so that patients wouldn't be able to, to recognize themselves in the writing. Right. Right. All right. Alana, thanks for coming on the show. Once again, to report it, the, the book is called Fragmented, A Doctor's Quest to Piece Together American Healthcare. Alana Yerkowitz. Um, so thanks for sharing the stories and insights. Do you have any last thoughts on uh, this discussion today for the audience? And uh, where can we find out more? So you, thank you for this conversation, Max. You can go to fragmentedmedicine.com to learn more. And um, I hope you go out and get a copy of the book. Awesome. Yeah, it will all be linked on the show notes page. Thanks, Alana, for coming on the show. Thanks.
All right. Once again, the book is called Fragmented, and you just heard from the author, Alana Yurkowitz. Definitely check it out. Now, as I said before, next couple of weeks, I hope to return to current affairs in AI and elsewhere, maybe some global events as well. Uh, so hope you'll join me for that. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. To support The Local Maximum, sign up for exclusive content and our online community at maximum.locals.com. The Local Maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe on your podcast app. Also, check out the website with show notes and additional materials at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. Have a great week. Feel the power.